I'm a foodie and I enjoy learning about the process that brings great foods and beverages from idea to the table. And then I like tasting them and learning the nuances of what creates the most significant tastes from coffee to cheese to distilled beverages. I did a tequila tasting in Mexico and recently bourbon, Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon really impressed me from the story to the taste. I grew up in Kentucky where horse racing and bourbon are famous and I got introduced to Heaven Hill bottled in bond bourbon. It's produced by Heaven Hill Distillery, which has been and still remains family owned since 1935. And I'm impressed with the bourbon's ultra rich, smooth taste. And right on the bottle, it states that this bourbon is seven years old, which is actually three times longer than what's required to be certified as bottled in bond. I feel with beverages, the longer the prep, the better the taste. Being a bottled in bond product means it must pass a list of seven requirements that set the standard for this quality bourbon. So look for it at your local store. Heaven Hill reminds you to think wisely and drink wisely. What Drives You is brought to you by Ziggler, your premier source for equipping life and leadership coaches. Visit Ziggler.com and let them inspire your true coaching performance. Yeah. Welcome to What Drives You. I am your host, Kevin Miller, and thanks for joining me again as I talk with today's most influential changemakers to uncover what truly drives them and extract the big takeaways from their insights so you can integrate that wisdom and leverage the power of your unique inner drive and wake every day to your authentic, driven, and inspired life. In this episode, we're doing a series on interdependence and the hope and opportunity to heal ourselves and our world from within that. Many of us were raised as I was to value independence, but from that, it seems we've grown more isolated and in truth, fearful, I think. So to help us understand what's happening and what the hope is, I bring you Thomas Hubel. Thomas is renowned as a teacher, author, and facilitator who skillfully integrates core insights from the wisdom of the ages with the discoveries of science, which I really appreciate. And he's worked internationally to help individuals and organizations, even countries, heal from their collective trauma. And we're going to get into that today. He's currently a visiting scholar at the Weiss Institute at Harvard University. And my muse for this series is his new book, which those of you watching the video can see over my shoulder as always. And it's called Attuned, Practicing Interdependence to Heal Our Trauma and Our World. And you can find that book on Amazon, of course, and connect with him at thomashubel.com. Thomas, it's just a gift I have known of you for so long. So many people that I know that have been in community with you, and I'm just grateful to connect face-to-face with you for the first time myself. Thanks for being here. I'm happy to be with you, Kevin. Uh, I am too. And I want to start right at the top of looking at that. I am, of course, sitting here in America, the land of independence. I have great appreciation for this country. Uh, There's plenty of things that have taken us awry as well. And reading your book and getting into interdependence, it gives me a lot of pause for our perspectives on dependence. So I'm going to ask you just to unpack that right from a 10,000 foot view on what are we talking? Because everybody's going to put their own concepts into what interdependence is. Please give me your perspective. Mm. Yeah. First of all, we grow up at the beginning, we are very dependent then we grow more and more independent as we individuate from our parents. But then eventually, I believe maturity, human maturity is 
that I am an individual, of course, and there's a uniqueness to us as individuals and the beauty and the intelligence and the uniqueness. But at the same time, and I think we often put this as either or, we also are the ecosystem. I would, I would challenge the notion because many people say, oh, I'm part of an ecosystem. And I would say, let's look at that deeper. When you, when you go through the forest, so where is nature? Is nature just around you? I would say, no, I'm also nature. My body is also nature. So where is that not nature? And the forest is nature. So the nature is all over. It's through us. And when we look at society, is society just around us? Or am I also society? So actually, uh, being ecosystemic is is something powerful, but there is a reason why we often are hyper-individualized, because I believe feeling a bit separate and feeling a bit isolated, these are classic trauma symptoms or collective trauma symptoms, because we grew up in a world that was already traumatized when we landed here to a certain extent. And so we might have normalized some inner states that we call, oh, that's how life is. And I would say some of the things are, that's how life is when it's hurt. Hmm. And I think when we add that sometimes, it's not for everything, but for some aspects, it's very important because then we can heal and develop and grow. And um, so that's why interdependence, I think, is me being an individual and also feeling myself, not just thinking intellectually, me feeling myself as the ecosystem, as nature, as the planet, as society. And then I think there is a powerful data transfer, how we participate in this different systems more fully. It feels like you are, we tend to look at, uh, this came up in a recent show, how we tend to look, I have I've thought of myself as tending to look externally. And neglecting the internal world. And yet, as I look at your messages and concepts, I feel you, and I'm trying to wrap my head around it, Thomas, honestly, is almost you blurring the lines between those, that there's not really a line between the external and the internal. So I find myself curious on even how I achieve that paradigm shift say there's not really a line, even though I subconsciously create one. Is that fair? Mm. Yeah, either subconsciously create one or, I mean, of course, we are individuated. This means that there is a uniqueness to Thomas and to Kevin and to everybody else. At the same time, when we begin to explore our inner world, we see that the more we bring attention, awareness, and consciousness into our inner process, we see from inside that distinction is not that clear-cut. And so I would say, yes, we created unconsciously, or we have been raised and educated and socialized by a world that was partly traumatized, and that separation is often mixed up with individuation. 
Right. And that's where this this clear line comes in that I think is not that clear and is much more fluid and relational than we sometimes think it is. Well, it's I know a big part of your message, and I was reading through the book, is our desire, any desire to belong. It feels to some degree there's nothing we want more than to belong, and yet so much of our life today, maybe more than ever, it is is this separation, is an isolation, even as we are more theoretically connected. And we say this, it's so elementary, I know, to say we're, we're connected by all these devices, whatever, and yet we do seem to be, be not only more isolated, but also more polarized if we look at the media. And so it feels like we are biting the hand that feeds us. And I look at your book as going, we are, we're drastically missing it. We're going the wrong way and we don't know it. So I, I, I feel a little bit inept at the gravity of this on how do we take average person like me who is not awash in these concepts and help us understand our desire to belong and how we are uh how 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 we're pushing it away ultimately and it's beautiful like what you said about belonging let's look at it as small children and our children too they are totally dependent what that means is that noticing our parents and how our parents feel us is existentially important. So our nervous systems are wired to attune. Many of us would say, of course, I felt when my parents were angry, I felt when my parents were happy, I felt when there was violence at home, I felt when there was when it was relaxed. So these are already aspects of attunement. But the healthy aspect of attunement is I feel you and I feel how you feel me, that attention can be felt. And we all do in a certain way because our nervous systems are wired like that. Then we individuate more and then we start to live our life. But actually, the more we grow up or the more we grow older, we actually begin to serve much more society, community. We are more engaged as grown-up human beings. And we want to make a difference in the world. And to do that, we need to be related because relating our gifts, even that podcast here, you relate whatever you do with all your guests to many, many people around the world. So we need that network of the social network. And so I feel you and I feel you feeling me is a process in our nervous system that when it happens, we feel safer with each other. When we feel safer with each other, we can relax more. Our stress levels go down. Our openness comes online. We feel more socially engaged when we feel safer. So for all of us, that that quality of attunement is actually a basic building block of how we build society, how we build organizations, how we, how we are in families, how we are with our kids. I, I often use a... An example, when, when my daughter comes and says, Daddy, Daddy, I'm scared. And then if I said to her, oh, don't be scared. There is nothing dangerous in the house. So what did I do? I devalued wow, the fear of my daughter. Yeah. I met her emotional need with a rational answer. 
And so she stays more separate with her fear because she can't co-regulate it with me. But the other version will be, I, I see and feel that you're afraid, come to me. In that moment, I open my nervous system to hers. I feel her fear with her. Her stress level and anxiety or fear levels drop. She feels safe because she feels felt. And then I can ask her, okay, let's look what, what scared you, what happened. So I bring in rational leadership after I validated and met her emotions so that she can co-regulate with my nervous system. That creates safety. And so I think exactly as you said, we if we practice attunement and we also heal certain parts of us that cannot do that at the moment because we are hurt ourselves, then we are drifting more and more apart and social polarization is a big sign of collective trauma, I would say. And then if we hear a lot of news, we we just amplify that and it will get worse and worse. Okay. It, it, I just wrote down connecting versus addressing that because what you just said, Thomas, is one of the it was a profound lesson as a parent. Um, I've got a good number of kids, and in the past, when they would run in with an injury, in complete, what I felt like was was love and care. I said, "Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Let's let's get a band aid. Run to the you know get a band aid. Let's fix the bleeding. Let's stop it. Let's clean it up." And then I found out through my wife actually reading about attachment that when I first need to do what would serve them best, and you just explained it in a way that helps me understand it because I have not understood it. I've just seen it experientially that if I would just take them in my arms when they run in and say, I'm so sorry, and give them a hug, mm-hmm. half the time or more, they'd run off, blood still dripping down, didn't care a bit, and they were taken care of. And I, I don't understand it. So I same love, but the result was so different. And with you saying that, it was, and I, I'm thinking about how I tend to do this now still, Thomas, with something like that, I tend to, okay, you come to me with something or something's happened, I'm going to address the issue. I care. I'm going to address it. And what I see you saying, and this is a small, well, not a small level, but you know, you're talking about this on a global aspect too, a cultural aspect, to before addressing it, can we connect? Am I tracking? Absolutely. Perfect. Exactly. And then into that, looking on a big wavelength, the responsibility of, as we tend to just address things, the external, the out there and address it, that you, I feel you, again, I'm going to just continue asking if I'm tracking on this, if I feel you calling and say, no, first take responsibility for my part in it. Because if I'm here, just like that, if I'm standing in the forest, I can't point at the forest and talk about it because I'm in it. I'm part of it help give us again give us a simplify that for us that's hard to understand mm-hmm. yeah you, you used to you used a beautiful word uh, that i love in, in english response ability it's my ability to respond it's different than reactivity which is when i get triggered i become reactive right but when I'm responding, it actually means I take in what you just said. I feel you while you speak. And then there is a response that is based on resonance. So so I felt you, and then an answer comes. When we are reactive, 
we are already holding often the argument that we want to say once the other person stops talking. So we are not really feeling each other. We are in this kind of separate bubbles trying to convince each other. But the responsibility is actually the ability to respond to another person, to the need of an organization, in countries, societies, as a citizen. And so when I go through the forest and I feel my body, I believe I feel nature. My body is nature. It's a biological system. It has been developed over millions and millions of years. So we actually carry the entire history of evolution in our bodies. And, and thousands of generations of life refined that body, refined emotions, refined body functions, refined thought forms, and or societies. And, and so I believe when I'm well connected to my inner body experience, when I can track my body well, when I feel regulated in my body, then walking through the forest is equally based on resonance. Yeah. It's I feel the forest that I'm walking through, and it's not only that I breathe the air and I feel the freshness and all the fragrances, I actually feel deeply connected to the forest, same as I can feel deeply connected to you when I feel you when you speak. And that level of interconnectedness or interdependence, I think then there is a natural sense of, wow, I am also the ecosystem. And what happens in the ecosystem is inherently connected to my life. Now, okay, take that same perspective, Thomas, of in the forest and being interconnected and take it to downtown New York when you're walking amongst 500 people at an intersection and that perspective of, of this is me and that is them. Help me walk through that in an interconnected way. Exactly. So where our sense of interdependence or interconnectedness gets challenged is when in our environment, when we recognize certain aspects that are also living in us and that are not well integrated in us. Okay. Integrated means it's part of my perspective. Unintegrated means it kind of looks like a disturbance of my perspective. So what I'm saying is if I carry a lot of unintegrated stress in my system, in my nervous system, and I walk through downtown New York, and many people are stressed getting to work. It's noisy. There's a lot of, I don't know, traffic and, and stuff. Then that might stress, that might trigger my stress. So what actually happens is my stress level escalates. And depending on my inner profile, I will become either more triggered into my fight mode or I will be more triggered into my flight mode. So either I want to get out of it or I get more and more nervous, angry, I give it short, you know, I snap at people, and or in traffic. It's as we see this often in traffic. And I think when the nervous system escalation goes higher, the fight or the flight uh, triggers get stronger. And But that's also partly because there is some aspect of what I see outside also in me. The more regulated I can stay, I can stay also regulated in the middle of New York. 
But if stuff comes up in me, it's more challenging than in the forest because the forest naturally has a much more calming effect on our nervous system. And many of us have been hurt by people, not by trees. And so then we get much easier triggered in society than uh, when we walk uh, the beach and we watch a beautiful sunset at the, uh, close to the ocean. Go, go more into that, Thomas, of the, because I want, I want us, I, you know, myself, the listeners to think about the things that are harming us, stressing us, uh, burdening us that we're, we're struggling with in our culture. And let's go ahead and focus on w- with people, whether it's a, a spouse or a boss or the other political side or, or whatever, because we hear that often that the things that bother us with others are often a reflection of ourselves. And that is, um, I, I would tend to think that we're afraid of that or afraid to admit that. Cause I look at that thing and I think, no, I abhor that. Surely it does. I, I, I'm upset with it because I don't like it because it's not a part of me. And yet if we're interconnected, we, I feel like, it, it, am I correct? And you say, no, it, it is. How do I accept that? And I would, I would even say, and accept that without fear, but with, with grace, how would you, exactly. how would you frame it? That doesn't mean agree. That's a very important part that, when when I when I accept something, it doesn't mean that I agree to it. That's a big difference. Like when I have the experience of something that that's that I really disagree with, doesn't mean that I uh, I agree to that value system. But it's hard to take it in because often the things that we really don't like outside point to parts in us that. It's not that it has to be the same, just exactly the same thing, but it triggers either fears or anger in ourselves or grief or ancestral wounds that we sometimes don't even think about that our ancestors experienced wars. And when we see a war, we get also triggered. And so there are many layers of information that we might carry in ourselves unconsciously um that that might be triggering and this can be in a like an intimate partner that has certain aspects that we really love and certain aspects we really struggle with and often we project that onto our partner our spouse but actually that when i look inside and i will see yes but i am holding an emotional charge and once we integrate that emotional charge and we grow wider inside so we have more space then we find a different responsibility. We respond to our partner different. And that creates, again, different than interpersonal dynamics. But when I get triggered at the same point again and again and again, and that's why we say the recurrent pattern is a sign of trauma. Sigmund Freud in Vienna already said the repetition compulsion of trauma is that we experience similar things over and over and over again because they try to surface to heal themselves. So it's with one person, but then if I change that relationship, often it happens that in the next marriage we have similar issues, and then it looks like, how can that be? I choose another partner, and after two years we're in a similar point. Because those things live inside of us, and I think when we turn it around, it's actually an amazing it's an amazing healing opportunity that we often don't see when it's when we are in it 
But I think if you can have some reflection space, it's actually many amazing opportunities to grow. Friends, I'm pretty candid about my lack of financial prowess. Money and numbers are fairly Greek to me, so I need a lot of guidance. One of my closest friends is a wildly successful wealth manager, and I'm working on some financial literacy and just continually seeking guidance. So I ask you to check out yahoofinance.com. Nobody knows it all on Yahoo Finance is an incredible resource for the rookies like me or the seasoned investors. You know, before my dad passed away recently, Dave Ramsey and his wife, Sharon, flew down to visit. We all got to spend a day together. And I was at yahoofinance.com just now. I saw multiple news flashes from Dave and other people that you respect. And they were hitting so many of the hottest areas in finance today. So it's a place to get a snapshot of all aspects of your financial interests. And if you have them, your portfolios. I hadn't realized Yahoo Finance is the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. So for your comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. One more time. YahooFinance.com. Thankfully, the days of building a business website, then having this massive endeavor to integrate an online store are gone. Today, Shopify has fixed all that. I had one business where we actually built the entire website on Shopify's platform. So whether you're just starting out or you're selling a million bucks of product already, Shopify is just the industry leader. It works the same for physical products or online and digital, and Shopify is just hands down the best out there. Most importantly, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. It's 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Getting people to buy is not that hard, at least to the buying point, but getting them to actually give their payment info is, and Shopify is king in that department. They also have top-tier customer service, which I think is critical. You can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Kevin. That's all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Kevin to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Kevin. Most of today, you will be indoors, likely your home or your office. I am as well. Even with my treks out into the woods, I spend a lot of time inside. And we're going to take about 20,000 breaths. According to the EPA, the indoor air is two to five times more polluted than the outdoor air, sometimes up to a hundred times more polluted. At my studio, we have heat being forced through old ducts. I walk on carpet full of years of junk. No idea what's floating in the air that I'm taking constant gulps of. The solution is an air purifier and Air Doctor is just the best. Air Doctor filters out 99.99% of dangerous contaminants and allergens such as pollen, pet dander, dust mites, mold, bacteria, viruses. They do it so it, your lungs don't have to. Air Doctor comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so if you don't love it, just send it back for a refund minus shipping. Go to airdoctorpro.com and use promo code KEVIN, and depending on the model, you'll receive up to 39% off or up to 300 bucks off. Exclusive to podcast customers, you will also receive a free three-year warranty on any unit, which is an additional $84 value. So to get this special offer, go to A-I-R-D-O-C-T-O-R-P-R-O.com Use promo code Kevin, airdoctorpro.com, promo code Kevin.
But I think if you can have some reflection space, it's actually many amazing opportunities to grow. All right, Thomas, on trauma. That is a word that we, I feel like we've got out there as a buzzword more than ever. And to the point of it possibly getting diluted or people, again, attributing a perspective or a definition that may not be fair that some people, I hear from both sides, some, even from therapists, some that want to say, look, everybody has trauma. You know, it may be small trauma, big trauma, whatever others say, well, no, trauma is only a life-threatening you know, issue here. And so to help us accept better, be able to assimilate uh, how you are looking at trauma. Cause I would say, I tend to feel like we've all experienced it now. It may not be a life-threatening abuse or, or uh, near death, but there's something that we are suffering from. Help us help define that under the label of trauma, if you would. Mm. So let's define trauma. Trauma yeah. is the inner response that comes up in us in relationship to very overwhelming experiences. And of course, this can be near-death experiences or very threatening experiences, or I've been working with people that have been shot or, and that were almost killed. Yeah. And so there, so that's one thing. Or abuse as children, violence in family systems. But also, we have to see that for example, when children get hospitalized and they need to stay in the hospital alone without the parents, which I think uh, some decades ago was still kind of a normal procedure, that is an existential crisis. So for a body of a baby, there might be certain aspects that we as grown-ups say, yeah, but that's not really a traumatizing, but for the experience of the child, it might very well be. And so strongly overwhelming experiences, it's like a computer overload that the system cannot stay related to, but has a very intelligent function that we call trauma response, which means that there is a very high escalated stress level and the nervous system can also shut down a part of that experience, or often when it freezes also, but shut down an experience, numb it, absence that part in order to survive better. And we can see this when people have car accidents and they are shocked, or when they're even wounded, and then you see they actually look like functioning, but they don't feel their body. They are shot out of their body. Yeah. That's why they can still do what they do, but in like with the full sensitivity, that wouldn't be possible. And so what I want to say with that is that often trauma is being seen as this, like a stigma or something that, I don't know, we try to hide. But actually, the process itself is highly intelligent. It served us as much as it could in that situation. And exactly what you said before, if we have very positive relational experiences when we get hurt, it has a tremendous impact on how much of the trauma will actually persist as PTSD or long-term trauma conditions that we still have 30 years later. So positive experiences within adverse situations 
a positive relational experiences are actually a tremendous support to reduce the after effects of trauma. And then if we, I would expand that term and would say, yes, there's shock trauma, there's, uh, there's the trauma of very adverse situations in our life, there's attachment trauma when our attachment process is being severely hurt through neglect or violence or other things. And um, But there, there is also the, the trauma of our ancestors, our parents, grandparents. There are even more and more epigenetic studies that show how trauma is being transmitted through epigenetic changes through sperm cells. And so there, And then I would even add that the collective trauma, like a Holocaust or racism in the U.S. or colonialism, left huge, big wounds in whole social fabrics around the world that also, that's what I would call collective trauma. So there's a whole spectrum, and I believe these are not separate islands. These are all one system. Because most of the time, why do children have attachment trauma? Because their parents were also traumatized. Yeah. And so it's not separable. It's also kind of a system that is connected. And if we can destigmatize or depathologize trauma and see the intelligence that it actually is, I think it's much easier to do the healing work that's needed. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and step into uh, a different forest again with you, Thomas. You just mentioned racism in the U.S. That has been one in recent times has come up uh, again, uh, and, and thankfully has come up in a needed way. And I've literally had conversations, and we've had I, I've had uh, you know folks on the show to talk about it, but still, as we're talking here, realizing. I don't think that I have viewed it in an interdependent way, in an interconnected way, I should say, that it's still me because I've even asked and and I and, you know others like me feel like over here as the privileged six foot tall white male American, I am, you know, maybe the least marginalized, most privileged being on the planet and yet realizing what happened, I, you'd see my, you'd see my, my motion over there, Right over there in the forest and it almost feeling inept and incompetent and trying not to feel guilty because what do I do? How do I do? But again, I'm looking at it over there in the forest. It's a different perspective and helpful. Again, when you say, no, I'm, I am in the, I'm part of that forest. I am, I'm not separated from it. Um, that's, I can, I can hear, I can feel that intellectually. It's still, leaves you at how do I change my paradigm to actually walk in that differently? Right. right, right. So, yeah, that's a big topic. On the one hand, you said it with you, the movement of your hand. Yep. Once it's over there, it signals like a distance. Yeah. And distancing is a defense mechanism that protects us from feeling. So whenever we feel distant, we don't feel the full extent of what that relationship really means in our life. And that's, that's how we often needed to grow up in the systems that we grow up. But that distance is already the first step to explore. 
when it's over there, when it's far away, when it's not understandable, then it means the resonance or responsibility, my ability to respond from resonance, like from I feel you feeling me, is cut, which due to the fact that we all have been born into a pre-traumatized world and in the U.S., like after 400 years of slavery and racism, so much pain has been inflicted and perpetually so and built a kind of a structural violence through the system that is uh, unfair, not equal, traumatizing, uh, many things. So living in that ecosystem has, it seems like there is privilege. But the way I look at it, when when we throw poison into the water that we live in, it will affect all of us. Yeah. And the more poison we throw into this water, we will breathe and drink that poison. And I think trauma on the massive scale or suppression or inequality or many things that structural violence or slavery caused is affecting everybody. It's just there's so much numbness often and so much absence that in that turning, because privilege is the capacity to turn away. And the positive use of privilege is the commitment not to turn away. Hmm. And, and I think if we don't turn away anymore and we are really facing the racial inequality, and we really look at what does that mean for me? Who am I in relationship to that? Then the principle of interdependence is being reawakened. And then if I see, oh, because of my privilege, I need to invest a lot in learning, in deeper understanding, in seeing more how the system, the white privilege, gave me privilege and I will, I'm committed to explore that in order to create something new in my life and in the communities that I impact. Then we reactivate the principle of interdependence. And, and I have seen that also happening in groups. And it's, it's not easy because we, we have to face a lot of pain. And many people don't want to face that pain. Mm. And I think we, we will use more and more painkillers and more and more stuff to numb ourselves because we don't want to feel that the water is toxic, that we put too many toxins. We cannot live in a society where part of the society stays suppressed when there's violence that we don't, that we don't uh, really take care of. And that's why um, I think in, in engaging more, not turning away and being committed to the restorative process that it needs to work on on big wounds like racism, colonialism, anti-Semitism, and more. I think these are, uh, I think, even citizens' responsibilities that we don't yet fully take, often as citizens, that we have to take care of the legacies. And the last thing I want to say, I think we need to work on a government-funded collective system, an architecture in our society 
their different countries, and that's also what we are working on slowly, or what we are working towards, is that countries and governments will provide a mainstream architecture where the legacy, being it in the US, being it somewhere in Latin America, being it in Germany with the Holocaust or in other places, that we need spaces to integrate that and we need collective spaces to heal the collective legacy. And I think this has amazing, on the long term, five to 10 years will have an amazing impact on public health care costs, criminal rates, or racism, anti-Semitism. Many social issues will start to decline once we consciously engage those big legacies. You said in there, related to, we don't want to face pain and how we will, you mentioned you know, painkillers and whatnot. I want to address in that our propensity to not want to face pain, and that's why we blame, that's why we accuse, as opposed to back to taking responsibility, I'm going to use that word again, taking responsibility, mm-hmm. or, or or again, interconnectivity to say, no, I am part of this. I mean, again, it's it's pithy to say, but that I am part of the problem. I have to... I I. I feel you saying, we, I have to accept that. I cannot separate myself. I have to accept that, which sounds weighty, but then you're also framing it around, I get to accept that because on the other side of it is pain to isolate myself. It's obviously not working. I guess that's what I would say. The, the independence and the looking, the moving my hand away like that, like I am again and saying those things over there, the forest over there, the, the you know, the, those other people, whatever. It is not helping me. It's not giving me joy. It's not giving me happiness. It's not giving me peace. It is causing trauma. And that's what you are trying to help us heal from. This is not a, this is not a, you're not, you're not judging us. You're, you're, you're inviting us. Fair? Very fair. Absolutely. Exactly. And, and, and it starts with when you say we don't want to feel pain. I think that's true. And, and it starts with our own pain, yeah. but then, but then once we are willing to feel our own pain or our own numbness, why we don't feel it? Because there is an anesthesia to start with in many of us. Then we also begin to feel other people's pain, huh. and I think that's the beginning of care. That's the beginning of engagement. That's the beginning of restoration. That's then nobody needs to tell me outside morally, you should be doing this. Because once I can feel the pain, I want to be doing that. And that intimacy that's being created through the walls of collective trauma, that I think is exactly what you mentioned. So I want to just to add, it's my pain, but it's also the pain of others that I, that I pull away from. And that's why I don't do certain things that actually are needed ethically to uh, create a healthier ecosystem for all of us. When you say that, Thomas, feeling others, this is one of the points that I pulled out of your book. The you got me thinking on. Uh, let's let's say relating. I generally we talk about relationships a lot. Relationships, relationships. That's a big. That's a you know common term. Everybody knows that relationships. We we think about that a certain way. You put the focus on relating. How are we relating? 
And as I considered that amongst myself and the culture, I tend, I tend to think just again, at a base level, I'm relating when I am communicating that is relating and what I hear from you, but that's not for a lady. That's just, that's communicating. That's back and forth. You can do that with absolutely no relating or no relationships. We can communicate. So if we take that off the table, that's not it. Help us better grasp the point of relationship, which is relating. Unpack that for me. Right. Yeah, you you already said that. You're, even, even the word relationship seems to be a noun. It's an it. I'm in relationship with somebody. But it's it's kind of a, a noun that doesn't describe the actual process. And and I think relating describes what's actually happening between us. Because we can sit in the same room and be in the distance. So then the distancing defines our relationship. There is a relationship, but the relation, the data flow is pretty limited. And and so when we feel open and intimate and close and there's a lot of listening and taking in, then much more data is flowing. So the, the relational system is much more intelligent when more data can flow. And so I feel you feeling me, an embodied version of relating, because often people are intellectually relating, but they don't allow each other in. So they don't allow themselves to feel each other. And and when we do that, we need to open. We need to be more vulnerable. We need to be more honest, more transparent. We become more caring. We slow down sometimes because sometimes we are too fast. and Or we become softer because sometimes we are too hard. And to be too fast and too hard are two ways how to reduce experience. And so when we begin to notice the process of relating, then what happens in me, what happens between us, and what happens in you is important for my communication. And that's what I describe in the book as transparent communication. It's not just what I want to say. It's what what happens in me, it, what happens in the space between us, and what, how you receive what I'm saying, all of that belongs into the awareness of relating. And so if we do that, then it's actually an amazing mindfulness pro- process or even a spiritual practice because it's a lot of contemplative uh, presencing. We need to be present for that. Okay, that was a main topic here that I again pulled out of your of your writing of your book was the transparent communication. Again, I want to unpack that, get your definition of that because even in hearing that, I'm going to just immediately attach to that what I think that that means and what that sounds like. And I will I do want to preface it with my own we've done some series here and it's overlapping on emotional intelligence. And I did that, Thomas, because that has been for all my performance and achievement and and thought of awareness, that has been one that I've missed most of my life mm-hmm. is emotional intelligence. And in that, you mentioned the word being honest. That has not been, uh, I did not know it, but has not been a part of my relationships in that way. I felt I was open. I would even say, that. I'm an, man, I'm an open book. I'm not, I'll talk to you about my money, talk to you about, well, I, I, I'm fine. But then I, it took me a long time to realize I don't ever tell you what I'm feeling, at least if it's mm-hmm. negative. 
specifically. I don't talk about that. So that's a dishonesty that I created to back to distance. I created distance and it was, it was, I've learned to give myself grace. It was not, not out of bad intent. I actually thought I was being good and not sharing, not being, as you would say, transparent. So I say that. And yet on the other side of it, it's very scary. Uh, can somebody, can somebody accept, can they handle my transparency? Can I do it? Well, because when my, when I first came to that point, then and jumped over and go, Oh, I have to share what I really feel. Well, I did really poorly, not in a way that was helpful, not in a way that, not in a way that connected. So, um, so help me reconcile this transparent communication because I read it and intellectually get it and also realize that's a big paradigm shift, a different language. That's right. That's right. And for this, we need to explain a bit the frame. When we say transparent communication, it means transparency, like what's really our experience and to be more and more able to share that in attuned ways. So to mm-hmm. share my inner experience in an attuned way. It also means that in a in a partly hurt world, we came to accept that we can read stuff about personal development, but we cannot live it. So we can read stuff, intellectually we understand, yep. but we can't walk our talk. That's what I reason plan to and get yeah, 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 absolutely. So so when but then we say, Oh, that's how it is. And I would say, No, that's not how it is. That's how it is when in our nervous system the mental functions are partly disconnected or top down controlling the emotional and the physical system as a defense mechanism. So when we can say, no, that's not how the world is, that's how the world is when it's partly hurt. And so let's tend to the wound that we see in that process because what is authenticity? Authenticity is that my physical, emotional, and mental and relational expression is one flow. So what I feel inside, what I say, how I say it is congruent. But when I tell you A, but you feel actually Thomas feels something else inside, I'm telling you I'm very open, but actually you feel I'm a bit distant and I'm holding back stuff from you, you'll say, maybe not. And so I transmit to you the split that I carry inside. And so it creates some kind of communicational dissonance or a relational dissonance. And um, and so transparency also means that my body feels your body directly. I think all our bodies communicate directly to each other. That my emotional system picks up on your emotions all the time if it's open. That's emotional intelligence. It's not the PhD about emotions. It's our range and our openness to feel what other people feel. If I need to ask you what you feel because I don't feel it, that's already a symptom. Yeah. And 
So transparency also means that we radiate a lot of physical data. Our stress levels, our level of tension is being broadcasted into the space. If we are open, we pick up on that stuff. Our bodies tell us. I don't need to look at your body language in order to understand how you are. My body knows this from your body directly. But if my body is shut down to a certain extent, then I wonder, then your body looks to me like a black box. And I need to ask you, so, by the way, how do you feel? But when it's open and it's transparent, then life becomes much more transparent. So the more we can heal trauma, which are shut down places in, in our nervous systems, our nervous system is actually an amazing biocomputer that picks up on a lot of information. And even in, in our work, we are, as when we train uh, in trainings for therapists or facilitators, when we look at even when somebody got hurt at age two, let's say, then the trauma information and the fears and the, and the stress that the person carries inside lives on that level even if the grown-up person speaks. So let's say somebody comes to my office and says, oh, I have very strong anxiety waves or panic attacks. And then I say, okay, while the person speaks, my nervous system goes to track what's actually the age of the fear. Because there might be two people coming that day to me. One says I have panic attacks. The other one says I have panic attacks. One has been maybe hospitalized at age two and went through an existential crisis that was very scary. The other one has been bullied at school at age 12 for a longer time without protection of the parents or teachers. That's a whole different level of fear. When these two people say, I'm scared, they are talking about different things. It sounds like fear, but I need to recognize what kind of fear to to meet them precisely where they need to be met. And that will accelerate their healing process. And so what I'm saying with all of this is that I think through the separation process that we talked about before, we are so used to feel a bit more separate and isolated that we accepted or normalized the symptoms that that creates in society. And when we heal more, we will feel, oh, life becomes more fluid, more connected, more interdependent. I feel that again. And there's much more relational data flow, which we started with relating. And, and so that fluidity, that's why in the book I call it also IAC, Individual Ancestral Collective. Fluidity is the healing of these different layers of trauma actually create much more data flow. So human systems become more intelligent because the data flows better between us. And so there's more intelligence acting. Fluidity is the healing of these different layers of trauma actually create much more data flow. So human systems become more intelligent because the data flows better between us. And so there's more intelligence acting. We'll come back now to, as we talk about, even back to the initial analogy of us in the forest and being a part of that. I mean, all of this requires, and I, again, I'm just more reminded in talking with you and in reading your book, that back to emotional intelligence in a sense of this is not very possible for me to 
walk out to engage with unless I do the work to be able to relate to myself. And as you know, we, we have not been trained in this. We have not been exposed to this. It wasn't a part of our upbringing for the most part. I mean, very few rare people. And so even in hearing this, I'm reminded of this so often, Thomas, we get talking to this level that we're talking to everybody. We can nod our heads. Yeah. Intellectually. And we have never experienced, I had never experienced uh, again, even in a growing up in the personal development world, I missed relating to myself. I was just a tool to get things mm-hmm. done. That's how I've looked at myself. And, and, and so this ability, again, it's a new language. It's a new perspective to figure out how do I first connect with myself so that I can connect with, with everything else. Fair enough. Fair enough. Very important. And like, well, and where do we, I want to, I want to speak to those who hear it and they're going, yeah, but I don't know where to start. Give us a starting point on connecting Mm. to self. Yeah, I think one starting point is our breath. One starting point is our senses. So when we pay attention to our senses, to qualities we perceive, the temperature in the room, the level of noise or stillness, the fragrances when I take a walk in nature, I bring that's what mindfulness is. It's the, it's the synchronization of sense perception, the data that I perceive, and my presence, my awareness. If I fuse these two, I, I become mindful, which means I, I experience the things that I experience a bit slower. I, I slow down the, the daily pacing. And how I s- slow that down is, for example, through my breathing, because when we digest, our nervous system goes into a parasympathetic relaxation. Then we can digest. When we are too stressed, the digestion is kind of limited, let's say. And But often in our fast-paced world, we don't have enough time and space that we take in our life to digest our experience. So we are digesting food, but we also need space to reflect on our life. And so sometimes building in moments where I step out of my regular business, and this can be just having half an hour of coffee, but not being on the phone, but just connecting to myself, allow myself to even just process my day, my life, my current situation is is like a reflection process. Then if I connect to my breath and I begin to feel how I'm breathing, then I can see every time I exhale, I feel where my body is most energized. Where Do I feel my body at all? And even if I don't feel my body, that's okay too. I don't need to put the pressure, but I at least notice that most of my body is not in my awareness. I don't feel myself. Some other people would say, yeah, I feel myself. I feel my legs. I feel my belly. I feel my chest. And that's where I start. That's the entry gate into inner sensations. And then I can even slow down a little bit and prolong a little bit my exhalations. And if I slow down the way I exhale, I help my nervous system to relax. When I relax, I will begin to feel a bit more space. I come down. 
I can reflect more, I begin to digest better, and I begin to integrate my experiences. And integration means learning. So when I make some space in my life for that, it also means some people say, yeah, but I don't have time. Yeah, but that's already an effect of an ongoing higher stress level. And then we often can sleep well, we feel maybe more anxious, and, and then relaxing for some people is also uncomfortable at the beginning. Because when we relax, we feel the stress more, and then in order not to feel it, we take our phone. And we stay busy, we read the news, we read what's happening in the world, because it keeps the stress level high. So for some of us, we really need to make some space and time. And even if it's 10 minutes in the morning, in the evening, or when I'm waiting for a bus or for a plane, I take and I don't go into the regular business. I make some space, feel my body, and check in with my emotions, feel my breath, and do this 10 minutes every day. That that already is a, makes a difference. And then, of course, I can take contemplative and mindfulness practices up to a very deep practice. Yeah. Um, but sensing, beginning to notice there is an inner space. And often when people, once we discover that, it becomes actually a very exciting space because so much is happening in us that we can be aware of. And I think transformation starts there. That's the place where we can really change our life from. And you're talking about mindfulness, again, a term we hear so often. And, and you know, I'm admitting that I'm coming to a lot of this at a very elementary level, Thomas. And you know, looking at mindfulness, just the concept of thinking about what I'm thinking about takes proactivity, even to the point of setting my watch to go off every hour just to stop me. And when I used to do that, and it was, you know, go down and do a set of push-ups every hour to now stop and go, Kevin, what are you thinking about? How are you feeling? It has been so difficult to see how I feel. And I've got Brene Brown's book, Atlas of the Heart, to help me figure out the vernacular of what I'm feeling, of the emotions. What are those emotions? I don't know those, to unpack those and to come out more. Now, another fruition of this that is a big part of your message, it's a big part of your uh, of, of this new uh, book, Attune, is resilience. Uh, another one, which actually I was introduced to that term by Brene Brown at some point, and yet we hear that, and I think that we, again, do an intellectual nod to the concept, but we don't know what that feels like to live in, what it really even looks like, and what the, maybe we don't understand what the hope really is, what the payoff is of resilience. So give us again your perspective on the on what resilience is, what the what the hope is from it. Mm. I think there are two layers I would like to speak to. One is when I begin to live a life that is more regulated inside, more connected to myself, then my life naturally becomes more sustainable. Because I feel when I'm too often in too high stress levels, for first of all, I start to notice that that's the case. And then once I feel my stress, I can learn breathing techniques or mindfulness techniques, like how I feel myself, I ground myself, and I learn to, to regulate my nervous system again and again until it becomes a function. Even the push-ups, you 
we're talking about, you know, you needed to train that and they get, you got better and better at it the more you right. did it. Right. And everything, if you go cycling, if I go running, if I go, like I do it every day, that's why my body can do that. Mm-hmm. And and that's the same with mindfulness. It's not just a quick fix. I think in the personal development arena, there is no quick fix. It means if I want to go deep, I need to go, I need to invest the time, the space, and my energy into it so that I grow a capacity. And um, so the first step is that my life becomes what we call more regulated. I can, even when I have a very full day, I can in the evening take five minutes, regulate my nervous system, go to sleep. I will sleep better, deeper, feel more regenerated and recuperated and energized the next morning. So there there are these kind of things. But that leads to something else. I would define resilience, the capacity to stay related to challenges. Okay. Okay, I like it. For me, resilience is, but in order to stay related, I need a certain level of inner development because otherwise challenges are the things I want to get rid of. They feel they disturb my life. And in a a book that I uh, like very much, the Tao Te Ching is kind of a guiding star for my own practice. There Lao Tse writes in the translation that Stephen Mitchell produced, Um, when the master runs into difficulties, she stops and she gives herself to it. And I thought that's an amazing line. It's not, first of all, the master doesn't have any difficulties. And if she runs into difficulties, she doesn't run away from it. She doesn't block it out. She doesn't want to get rid of it. She gives herself to it, which is amazing. It's like, being able to stay related to our challenges, even if we don't know how to solve them, doesn't mean that I immediately have the answer, but I stay connected. It's the same thing. Because the fact that it's challenging means I have a hard time processing what I'm experiencing. There might be a business challenge, there might be a difficulty, there might be whatever. And but I, it's hard for me to process. So stress comes up, fear comes up, maybe whatever. If I stay with that, I grow inside, and then I see that many challenges are actually my teachers to grow. And then when I'm running into a challenging moment, uh, I think the skillful way is not to immediately have the answer, but to find out what's my next step. So the more crisis modes we have, the smaller steps we need to take in order to, because we often don't see the solution of the crisis, but we can see the next step and then the next step, and that becomes a path. And and so I think resilience is that capacity not to shut down in the face of challenges, but to actually stay related to the challenge and bring our intelligence and wisdom and capacity into situations that seem too big or too something, but I'm there. And that helps me to create the path. And so I think resilience and then we can talk about, okay, what are factors that lead to resilience? I think a mature development and a 
physical, emotional, mental maturity are definitely some core elements uh, plus other other qualities that we can train. I mean, this aspect, I mean, again, our topic here are, are in the series is on interdependence. And I keep coming back and hearing you, it's coming back to connectedness with self and thus with others, which is what we want, coming back to belonging. And you talk about that in the book that we are, we talked about uh, interdependence versus uh, dependence, or or independence, I'm sorry, interdependence versus independence, which that's the word that we tend to know, especially in this Western culture. And you also then take that, these sides of being, me being, uh, and becoming, being and becoming, autonomy and belonging. And that we look at these again as these either or, I think is what you said, or polarized aspects of that. And that's, and we see, we see, we can go to the media and see the results of that today. Uh, and it's, it's not working for any of us. And our peace is getting worse. Our, you know, the diseases of despair are increasing rapidly, apathy and depression, and even into suicide. And that's what you're posing here. The being versus becoming the autonomy well, I don't know. Is that true to say verses? Are they are they at odds with each other? I would say I would say that being is the basic human right. Is being in life or being alive? Okay. I, I frame this often as the. I believe human rights are composed when we break it down out of three human rights: the right to be, the right to become, the right to belong which means every human being has a right to live because life gave us this life. Every human being out of being comes becoming. So we all have an intelligence. We all want to express ourselves. We feel happy when we can develop. We feel happy when we flourish, when we feel movement in our life. Becoming is movement. Most of most of the time, people don't come to us and say, hey, Kevin, I really need a session. I'm in such a flow. Right. Nobody comes. People don't come to. Yeah. Yeah. But we, when we, when we are in a flow, we don't say we are in a flow. We are in a flow. Why? Because it's uplifting. It's creative. It's flowing. When our life's flowing, we usually happy. Why? Because we are connected to the original movement of our being. And so there's being. There's becoming. Is the energy that expresses itself through us. And the creativity we bring into the world and we do something meaningful to us. This is different for a mathematician than for like a social worker than for, I don't know, uh, an artist. And, and, but then we also, the right to belong, to belong means to be part of a meaningful social network through which we express our gifts. And I think these three elements, when they are in balance in somebody's life, and they are not for everybody the same. Some people express much more being, some people express much more becoming, but all of us need these three elements in a certain composition in place. And our, when we are too isolated, we become depressed or we become, we become heavy. It feels like we are not belonging. And when we reduce our energy to this creative and we don't see a future, so it's similar. It also leads to this kind of symptoms. Or it radicalizes itself and it leads to a lot of anger and frustration. Right. And um, 
so I think these elements, uh, they belong all together as the flourishing of life. And I think as much as they are human rights, everybody has a, I believe if we support everybody in these three elements, we have a functional society. It's interesting that I look at it, the right of being, I'll restate it, the right of being, the right of becoming, the right of belonging. And when we look at the the challenges, the, the the fights, the dissension, the polarization that's out there, I'm feeling that we get stuck in the right of being, and that's it. Mm-hmm. The right of being, it's our rights. I mean, we know that term, it's my right to do this. It's an entitlement. It's a, I deserve, it's a whatever, I, the right of being, and we're not going to the next step of the right of becoming. What are we looking to become? And then back to, or then up to belonging, which at the core of us, I, and I, I can't imagine anybody, if you get them in a silent moment, doesn't admit that the thing we want most is to belong. Even if it's to our demise, we just want to belong uh, with people. And that's what you're giving us a path to achieve. I know that's your your heart's cry. I want to land Thomas, I think we've hit, you've got a list in the book of uh, what you call higher relational skills. And I think we've touched on different aspects of pretty much all of them, but I want to land us on, it's the second one you cite, it's recognize the functions. Again, this is under the title of higher relational skills, recognize the functions and forms of perception. So that's one that I, comes up on the show because I bring it up. I'm enamored with that, with there may be uh, an objective reality that happens, that exists. And yet I don't know how much it matters because what happens is our perceptions of that. And I struggle. And I think sometimes people, I think a lot of people do struggle with that to say, come on, isn't there, we want there to be a truth. We want there to be something that exists. And yet here we are in what you perceive, what I perceive, what somebody else, what 10 other people perceive uh, is often going to be so vastly different because of our filters, because of, as you would say, our traumas, our ancestral traumas, things that happen, not even in our lifetime and a higher relational skills to recognize the functions and forms of perceptions, give us some insight in how to not just give intellectual head nod to that, but actually engage with recognizing the functions and forms of perception. Mm. That's beautiful what you said, and also how you recognize the filters we all carry. And uh, I think once I understand that the trauma that lives in me, either personal trauma, as you said, ancestral or collective trauma, creates filters. And the there are no post-it stickers that say, Thomas, here is what you don't see. There's nothing like that. So I don't know what I don't see. But often we are very certain that how other people are and or how other groups are, but we are not taking into account that there might be enough that we don't see and it fixates a certain reality in us. And that's why I think humility is such an important practice. Also in many wisdom traditions, humility, that I bow down to you and the only way I can find out more about you is not what I know about you, but what I learn from you. 
I learn a lot from you through this conversation because I deeply listen, I feel you, I learn from you as you speak. And that creates relating a data flow between us. And so what I all my preconceptions about you are not relevant because I'm learning from you directly when I listen to you. And I think that humility that we learn from each other, or here's an example. I once had a, a because I do a lot of this collect, big collective trauma work, workshops with big groups. And so once there was a woman in Germany, the, the separation between the former East and the former West, even though this has been unified into one Germany, a lot of integration didn't happen. And there, and there is still often a perception like that the former East is looking up to the former West because that's what was what it what it often was for people, and and um, and once a woman shared in a group about her experience, and then I said to her, "You see, I learn a lot from you. I need to listen from you about the." life in the former East, because I have no idea. All my projections, all my assumptions, that's what I learned from the news. That's what I learned from, uh, I don't know, my education. But when I really learn something is when I listen to you and I absorb and I feel and I learn from you how your life was. And then she started to cry because she said, yes, so often... uh, I felt that people from the West and former West are not interested in learning from us because it seems like that life was better, had more money, had more freedom, had more whatever. And and that's just one example of, I think, humility is the way to transcend slowly our filters and create intimacy. And the next thing I want to say about reality is, I think when we look at perception, when I look at you, Kevin, I you the Kevin that I see lives in my central nervous system. Of course, you're sitting where you're sitting, but the one that I see is already filtered and arises as a form in me. So I only know what I see and feel, but it doesn't mean that what I see and feel is congruent fully with what who you are, where you're sitting. But relating is the way of updating you in me. So as long as I'm related and I feel you, I update you in me. It's like constant updates. I update Kevin in me. But if I become more distant and disconnected from you, I live with the past because the data flow, it's like you have apps on your phone, but you the, the, there's no data connection and you can't update those. You become old. So Kevin in Thomas becomes old when I disconnect from you. And that's what we see in social polarization. The groups become old in each other because we don't feel each other anymore. We don't listen to each other. We don't create those spaces often in polarized political or social or whatever racial communities because there's so much pain that prevents it. And I like the word information. It's in form. So when your information, you, your social agency is informing me 
So I have a form of Kevin in Thomas. The more open is my body, my emotions, my mind, to you, to your world perspective, to how you think, how you feel, the more information goes into me. And I have a form of you in me. And I believe when we really live that, that we stay curious all our life to learn from everybody, then we create more and more intimacy because we allow ourselves to be informed. We don't premeditatively know each other, even if we read about each other, but we create intimacy. And I think this is one of the remedies to transcend these preformed realities that you spoke about. Thank you. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap us there. I've got a question for you at the end, uh, Thomas, but um, thank you. This has been, uh, I, I'd admit it, this is a journey for me. Uh, your book that I've been studying, I'm going to continue. I want to continue this conversation and I want to introduce this to everybody. That's why you are on here. And again, folks, the book is Attuned, Practicing Interdependence. That's the name of the series. Practicing Interdependence to Heal Our Trauma and Our World. And you can find the book again at Amazon, of course, and find Thomas at thomashubel.com. And if you got value from here, which I know you did, let us know. Leave a review on Spotify. Leave a, a review in Amazon and talk about what you heard here. It'd be good to continue the conversation. You can watch this episode and we'll have a bunch of clips of some of the, the key things that Thomas shared with us on YouTube, social media at Kevin Miller CO. Uh, of course, if you want to learn to master your inner drive, check out my book, What Drives You on Amazon. And until next time, folks, stay driven. Yeah.